Welcome back to the What's the Scenario podcast. I'm Omar Naziruddin. It's been a long time since we've done our last episode, so it's only right to reintroduce ourselves, especially to those who are new to the channel. We are a podcast that covers the American Muslim experience, from powerful and extraordinary stories, to shared experiences we've dealt with, to perspectives and opinions that we all have, but don't know if anyone else does. Well, this podcast encapsulates them all. So if you're interested in what we're trying to do, we are more than happy to have you along the ride. And this episode in particular, it's a real special one. We have that rare occurrence when two such journeys intersect. We have special guest host Zara Khan, who's the founder of the blog Bells and Books, a site about all her travels around the world and between the pages of all kinds of books and stories, interviewing Fatima Farheen Mirza, author of the New York Times bestselling novel, A Place for Us which is Sarah Jessica Parker's first publication under her publishing house, SJP for Hogarth. And they have an in-depth conversation about the book, quips about their community, the writing process, and so much more. So without any further delay, here's Zara. Our guest today is Fatma Farheen Mirza, New York Times bestselling author of A Place for Us, a moving portrait of what it means to be an American family today a novel of love, identity, and belonging that eloquently examines what it means to be both American and Muslim. I'm your guest host, Zara Khan, and this is What's the Scenario? Here we go, yo. Fatma, thank you for joining us on What's the Scenario? Thank you so much for having me. So really, I want this to be a conversation where we're talking about community in a way that you maybe don't get the chance to do as often amongst all of the different kinds of people that you come across on your book tour. So I uh, really just quickly wanted to start off by asking you a couple of questions on how you created the community in A Place for Us. Mm -hmm. Well, the community in A Place for Us was a huge part of the book, partly because on one hand, it's the social sphere that these characters live in. You know, Hadia, of course, has her friends from school and the siblings have each other. Mm -hmm. But really, the book is about their family as a unit and their family's social sphere is the community that they live in, like the mosque community, the Pakistan Indian community that are their family friends, you know, for birthday parties and barbecues and what have you. Um, and also it's, it, it becomes a, about the community also because the other family in the story, the Ali family is kind of the, the other main family that the, the family of the novel, which is Leila Rafiq as the parents, Hadia, Buda and Amar as the children um, are reacting off of you know, Amar forms the friendship with Abbas Ali and the Ali family and later a romantic relationship with Amira Ali and Seema and Layla have a relationship throughout the book as well in some ways. Um, and so because of that, the community, the, the community took on its own character. Mm -hmm. And also, you know, I think so many Indian Pakistani kids will be able to relate to this feeling of um, the community 
as being something that your parents at some level are making a decision off of based off of how they're raising you, you know, like at some level, it's what the community would say and what the community would think, you know, the whole like like mentality that really informs the way that your parents are allowing you to do things or not allowing you to do things in your teenage years, you know, that was definitely the case for me. As I got older, it became easier for me and my parents to kind of have a conversation as me, their child, and them, my parent, and not have, you know, what their aunts and auntie and uncle would say as, as a part of this conversation. But definitely when I was younger, it was the community lens, or the, sorry, the community gaze was huge. It was almost like, it was almost like the all-seeing eye of God, you know, where it's like, it's like God is watching you and also aunties are watching you, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I feel like we've all been there, right? Especially as um, women in our community, we have a much stricter gaze to be um, yes. kind of aware of at all times. And then they, the stress on kind of like maintaining your reputation as, right. a, as a, you know, Bach woman or. Right. And what's frustrating is that the reputation, it really, the maintaining of one's family's reputation, it really falls on the daughters as, as, um, you know, if the daughter acts out of line in some way, or if she's wearing something scandalous, you know, it's Mm -hmm. like, it's, it's the, the way that she's, um, chastised in that moment is, you know, our family's reputation depends on you to like uphold. On that topic, you mentioned that, you know, depending on what you're wearing or how you're presenting yourself, you're being judged 24-7. And I kind of wanted to get your input on how that experience was for you, particularly, because I know you used to wear hijab and then you decided to take that off. Yes. Um, hmm. So one thing that I really vividly remember as a teenager or a young teen was, um, and you know, I feel like I I was the oldest child in my, in my family and I was also the only daughter. And so everything in terms of the parenting that was happening for my parents, it was their first time with everything. Mm -hmm. And so when I said, I want to wear jeans and I want them to be, uh, this particular brand and this, and you know, like skinny jeans had just come out. And I was like, of course I want to wear skinny jeans, you know? And then my parents were like, no, this is too tight. This is absolutely unacceptable. And that was like a, when I was 13, 14, that was like a huge <laughs> blow to my emotional <laughs> emotional well-being as a kid. And I was like, this is so unfair. Like, of course I want to wear these jeans, like, um, you know, and all of that. And I remember my my mom would say would say to me, you know, Um, she would want me to wear Indian clothes all the time. When we come home, when I'd come home from school, she would be like, why don't you get dressed into shalwar khamis? And we'd be going out to our friends, family friend's house. She would say like, why aren't you wearing shalwar khamis? And so I'd always, and that was also its own, I don't know about you, but to me that was like its own particular frustration and heartbreak too. Like, God, why do I have to change into shalwar khamis all the time? You know, now I kind of love it because it's so comfy that I'll like wear it when I'm walking around the park too. Um, But then it was like, it was absolutely annoying to me and I remember you know me and my mom had this one fight and and she was saying to me like wear shalwar khamis and not those skinny jeans when we're going somewhere because my mom would wear would wear shalwar khamis when she's going to the grocery store or the mall and you know it's not what I wanted to do Mm -hmm. but I was like okay with her doing it but then she we were having this fight and what she says to me is why are you ashamed of who you are 
You know, why mm. can't you wear this? Why are you ashamed of who you are? And I remember thinking, but mommy, this is who I am, you know? And that kind of captured it, which is that like, of course I am somebody who wears shalwar khamis when I want to, but I'm also somebody who, who gravitates towards skinny jeans when I'm 14 and skinny jeans are the new craze. And, um, and both of those are an expression of me and who I am. Right. I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah. Um, well, actually, the reason I ask is because I also wore hijab for a short period of time, and it was mm-hmm. really by my own decision. Mm-hmm. Um, and surprisingly, my parents were actually, well, my mom was, for the most part, against it, mm-hmm. um, interestingly enough, just because her mother had never worn it, she'd never worn it uh, even wearing yeah. a dupatta around her shoulders was just aggravating for her when she was a kid. So mm, she didn't understand mm-hmm. why I would want to wear hijab. Yeah. So um, kind of having the opposite struggle where I'm arguing with my mom on why I feel like I should be wearing hijab. And then mm-hmm. her kind of telling me, well, you know, I don't feel safe with you wearing it right now right. because of the current environment and right. things of that nature. Um it but was, that's a particularly sad, yeah, that's a particularly sad reason that I, I do see, um, you know, this happened after 9-11 and this also happened after Trump was elected. You know, after nine, when 9-11 happened, I was wearing hijab. I was in fifth grade. I started wearing it when I was nine. When Trump, by the time Trump was elected, I was not wearing hijab anymore. Mm-hmm. But I remember that it was a similar moment, like, you know, in terms of our families communicating with each other and just asking, like, do you think it's safe for our daughters to go out wearing hijab? And so that is its own, like, particularly sad reason that sometimes parents feel not comfortable allowing their daughters to wear it if their daughters actually want to wear it, which is like fear of, you know, what will happen if you're wearing hijab in a parking lot and you happen to come across a, a prejudiced and, you know, violent, angry person. I'm talking with Fatima Farheen Mirza, author of A Place for Us. We're going to take a quick break here, but when we return, we'll talk about Amar's experience of 9-11 in the book and our personal experiences living through its aftermath. Stick with us. Speaking of 9-11, I'm, I'm always curious to hear another Muslim American's experience yeah. during that time and the after effects of that. And I noticed that you also have that point of view for Amar in mm-hmm. the book. I found it interesting that it was his own closest friend who had known his family. His parents had known Amar's family. And suddenly he wasn't defending Amar when these other random kids in the community were calling his uh, Amar's father a terrorist. Right. And I found it fascinating that you chose that individual who does know the family so well to be the perpetrator of such hate. What was your intention behind writing it that way? And then what was your experience in 9-11 as well? Right. Um, so for Amar scene in particular, I actually really feel for Mark in that scene. Mark is the boy who was friends with Amar when he was in third grade. And Amar got held back in third grade. And then um, Mark and him 
remain friends, but then eventually they change schools. And so by the time the scene happens, though they knew each other in childhood, they actually don't have direct communication. But I kind of, what, what was interesting to me in that scene when the two kids are bullying Amar is that for a second, Mark also is caught between you know, what he knows that Amar's father's not a terrorist and he knows that he's been to their house. He's eaten their food. He's played with them and played with Amar and his sisters. And, um, and, and yet like, he's also confused, right? Like his friends are also kind of saying, well, this is how we're going to approach this kid. And there's a moment where he also feels ashamed and like looks away. Mm -hmm. And yet, because he's also a kid and also going through all of this stuff that is so impossible to understand as a seventh grader, yeah, he chooses to kind of be cruel to Amar in that way. Um, one thing that I was interested in exploring as a fiction writer in that scene is that a few things. One being that it is easy to brush off ignorant comments or racism when it's a stranger who's mm -hmm. doing it against you. Not easy. It's always frustrating. It always is heartbreaking. It always makes you angry. But there's a way that you can distance yourself from it when it's a guy who's in line behind you at Starbucks, you know, or when it's like um, somebody in security. Right. You can just say, um, oh, they don't know anything about me. They, they probably have never mm -hmm. met a Muslim before. Right, right. But what I find most painful is when your own friends and your own family friends will say something that gives away some kind of prejudice, not as overtly as happens in a, as we see happening in the scene with Amar, but in some way, you know, that is to me the most painful. When when your own friend says something that pinches in a way that makes you think, wait, how do you think of my family? Or how do you think of my father? And so that was one thread that I was interested in exploring. And I, for Amar, I was also interested in exploring um, what is it that makes him hit Mark? Like, what is it that makes him fight back? Is it when he's being called a terrorist? Is it when, or is it when his father is, right? Because because for Amar at that point, his relationship with his father is quite um, distant. Mm -hmm. But I was interested in figuring out like, how can that moment be a key or clue to readers and me um, to understanding what Amar actually does feel for his father, which is that when push comes to shove, even though he knows his father has had a temper against him, you know, there's a way that he, his reaction is wanting to protect his father and that he's actually observed his father in his quietest, most peaceful moments as a man who is the opposite of what is being said about him. Mm-hmm. When you asked about my own experience of 9-11, I was really young when 9-11 happened. I was in fifth grade. I had been wearing the job for two years. And um, by then, you know, it was a part of my day. It was a part of my routine. It was, it was who I was. It was who my cousins were. Um, and so, and I was the only girl in my elementary school who wore it. I remember that. And I remember the day before, um, the day of 9-11, before we were going to go to school the next day, because I believe it happened on a Tuesday. Is that right? I don't remember. I, I vaguely remember that as well. Yeah, I'm, I'd have to look that up, though. Yeah, yeah, but I remember we had to go to school the next day. Mm -hmm. Like, it was a weekday. And I remember Baba comes into my room the, the day before. And he says, I just want you to know that tomorrow you're going to go to school and you're not going to wear a hijab. And then I was so confused because I knew that the TV had been on all day. And I knew that by then we knew who the perpetrators were and that their names were, you know, Arab names, Muslim names. And that was also confusing. 
And my cousins had come over that day and we were so little and we were just thinking, we hate them. We hate them. That's what we were saying to each other, you know, like we hate them so much, like they're ruining everything, but we didn't know what they were ruining. We, We were so little and and then we were like playing with T.Y. Beanie Babies at the time. Remember, I remember like my, my bed was like full with all these like T.Y. Beanie Babies. And then my dad comes into my room that night and says like, you're not wearing hijab the next day. And I was crying, crying because when it becomes crucial to your identity, when it becomes crucial to your wardrobe, to, to be without it would be to feel naked, you know, which is something that I felt when I was 22, tw- I mean, 21, about to take it off you know, that's a different conversation. But I remember crying all night the night before. And I remember waking up the next morning and my eyes were red and poofy. And I remember going to school and I remember thinking like, you know, what have I done? Like, why should I, like, why should I have to change something in me if, if I have nothing to do with what those men did on TV, you Hmm. know? And then I was trying to form the connections like, well, what does my what do I have to do with them? And does that mean I do have something to be ashamed of in myself if I'm having to change something in this moment? And I remember actually there was a boy in my class who had a huge crush on, which maybe informed the Amar scene. And um, I had a huge crush on him. You know, he was really good at math and I was bad at math. And back then it was like that simple. And he would spike his hair. It was like when hair gel was first you know, introduced yeah. and stuff. And so he would spike his hair and I was like, wow, he spikes his hair. And at recess, he, he actually came up to me and we were friends at the time. And he came up to me and he, he asked me like, is your dad a terrorist? Is your dad a terrorist too? And I, and I, my reaction was just to like run away from that moment and go into the bathroom and just cry and cry. And I, so when I was writing the Mars scene and I was thinking, what is it like for a boy and not a young girl of 10, but a boy of 14 to be asked, is your father a terrorist? How would he respond? And for Amar's particular personality, it would be punching Mark. Uh, but for me at, at, you know, 10 years old, it was to run into the bathroom stall and just cry. Oh my goodness. I can't even imagine. I mean, knowing that how young we were at the time, because I'm also uh, 26. So I was about right. 10 years old back then as well. Knowing that those kids now in hindsight were just being informed by what their parents were telling them who are also right. kind of living in this moment of fear and right. being completely unsure of, you know, are my kids going to be safe around people of this kind? Mm-hmm. Everybody was struggling with that same question. It wasn't just the Muslim Americans of the of the country, you know? Right. Obviously that comes with, that understanding comes with a level of maturity, but, but that kind it's still of, formative in those years, you know, asking right. those questions of yourself. Right. I think that you're absolutely right in that the fear is the fear that my father had sending me off as a 10-year-old wearing hijab is similar to the fear that the country was feeling, you know, will our children, will our citizens be safe? Like what, in terms of terrorism and things like that, like that fear is similar, but I do think that the way that the fear then transforms into a kind of like shame, uh, a kind of shame that's like not fully understood, not fully realized. Obviously, if you press on it, you realize actually I have nothing to be ashamed of, mm-hmm. you know, cause I have done nothing, but still like that there is a kind of shame. And I think that is something that I don't think we've spent a lot of time thinking about or unpacking like what, what it has done to my psyche or my brother's psyche over time that, you know, when there is a terrorist attack and it is a Muslim, it is so, um, it like 
You relive the, it over and over you again. You relive it. You relive it. And it's constantly playing. And the news covers it so much more than a similar attack that's done by a white lone wolf that that shame does return in some level, I think. I agree. And I think that's why whenever I'm talking to somebody, I, I make sure to ask them about their 9-11 story because it, it kind of feels to me like we've shoved it under the rug and we don't talk about that very much mm -hmm. because, oh, we were so young or even for my older sisters who are like, you know, in, they were about 16 or so when this happened, they weren't that young. They were having to face this on a regular basis and they knew exactly what was going on. Whereas we were a little bit right. less aware of it, but kind of right. attacking it head on is so important to addressing it and then improving ourselves and accepting ourselves for who we are. You're listening to What's the Scenario podcast, and this is my conversation with Fatima Farheen Mirza. When we come back, Fatima and I discuss Hadia's part of the story and how being a Muslim woman in an immigrant American family poses its own unique challenges. Hadia's story is so much subtler in this book than Amar's is. Amar is very much the, the more openly rebellious and the more openly reactive character. But Hadia's character is much more quiet and she she follows kind of what I believe is like the average, typical mm. Indian Muslim American with immigrant parents. And I found it very brave of you to write about Hadia the way that you have because she seems to encapsulate every girl's thoughts who's kind of going through the same things that Hadi is going through in the in this book you know mm -hmm. becoming the doctor that her parents wanted her to be getting married to that person who whoever the parents say that they should get married to because they're from the good family and they're from a good background mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. all of that i actually read this book in a book club with a lot of other individuals of the same kind of background and every single one of them was so appreciative of how honest the book seemed to be in tackling the same issues that we go through as women of this culture. And so there's a scene at the very beginning of the book where you talk about how Hadia just tells her parents that she wants Amar to come to her wedding. Mm -hmm. And she has to practice that over and over and over in her head mm -hmm. um, until it just sounds effortless. Mm -hmm. But for her, mm -hmm. it's such a big struggle in with you know in herself to be able to do that. What was your intention of shaping Hadia's character in that way? And do you see similarities in your relationships um, in your family? Because I went to a Dallas Museum of Arts your interview there, mm -hmm. and you mentioned how you didn't feel like you could be a writer until your writing professor, your creative writing professor, gave you the right. permission to do right. so. Right. So with Hadia, you know, I I think you're absolutely right in that she tries to do the right thing and she's almost she's almost trapped in her own self by how much she actually wants to do the right thing, but how much she has this other voice 
which when it differs from what is expected of her, wants to insist on her own path. I don't think that Hadia is somebody who only ever does the right thing. I think that Hadia finds in her life ways to to rebel and to like create a life that's her own as well. I think ultimately she does make some decisions that that she'll never be able to take back. Um, like what she realizes with her career path, you know, at one point she realizes that, yeah, she decided to be a doctor because it would make her father happy. And now she's kind of, um, she knows she's not really interested in it. And she knows that she doesn't actually love what she's doing. Mm-hmm. And that's, and because she was not brave in that moment and that decision, that's her fate now in some ways. But in other moments, I think that Hadia does try. And I think that, I think that Amar tries, well, one, it's a matter of personality, right? Her, and it's also a matter of birth order. She's the oldest daughter. And also Amar is the youngest. And also Amar is a, a son. And so his acting out, the the parents have so much more patience for his acting out than they do hers. And like even the way that Layla thinks about them, you know, um, when Layla thinks it's hard watching Amar step into towards sin, it would be impossible if her daughters did the same. These kind of pressures that are placed on Hadia and Huda are not really placed on Amar in the same way. And so he kind of has freedom to, to act upon his desires in a way that Hadia would have to do a lot more fighting to act upon her desires. Mm -hmm. You know, I kind of feel that I'm between Amar and Hadia. I, I definitely threw more tantrums than Hadia did. (laughs) And I definitely did not go as far as Amar did, you know? And so, but it takes, you know, Hadia is, facing a whole lot and she's carrying a lot on her plate. She's, she knows partly also because her brother is so consuming of his parents, mental and emotional energy. The parents spend so much time worrying about him and seeing that he's, you know, straying from the path and, and acting out in haram ways and stuff. So then in that way too, Hadia kind of has the empathy of seeing what the parents are going through. And so it's not just that she's trying to be the good girl, but it's also because she feels for her parents that they've, that her brother is being selfish in a way. But I do think that Hadia finds little ways to make her life her own. Like when she dyes her hair blue or when she, you know, goes and sits on the driveway or when she does let Abbasali make mango lassi with her mm-hmm. and all these little things that she does. And, and I think it really hits her actually. Maybe this is a spoiler, but there's one moment where she sees how far her brother has gone from the expectations of him that were placed on him and how that actually allowed him to get something that he wanted meaning it allowed him to embark on a relationship with Amira Ali. And Hadia does think in that moment, like, wow, like her brother had the audacity um, to fight for what he wanted. And all these years, Hadia had kind of kept her desires muted or um, hadn't reached for them. And my understanding is that it's shortly after that realization in her that she begins to reach for Tariq, who later becomes her husband, um, which is a match in marriage born out of her choice. But I'm so happy that her experience resonated with you. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like my own sister actually has followed that similar path where she became a doctor, even though she had a lot of artistic talent. Um, Mm -hmm. And she specifically became a doctor and got married to the person that she got married to because our parents were uh, seeing that that would be the best route for her. Mm -hmm. Right. And, And we all realized that 
they want the best for us. And that's why they are directing us down the paths that they are. It's just, right. you you have to wonder whether it's, it's almost like that helicopter parent, uh-huh. <laughs> you know what I mean? What Where they, like they want to, they, they want to just hover over you at all times and make sure you're doing everything the way that they want you to. And mm-hmm. they're participating in all the same events that you want them to. Right. I think what's important to remember is that they do want what's best for you, but they want what's best for you only in the conception of of what they can imagine. And so they have a very particular vision of life in mind for you, which is in some ways like their vision or like what their life was like, because that's, and it is out of like a love for you. And it is out of a want for you to have a safe life, because if you were to go out of that, then they can't, they almost can't help you. You know, like they almost can't give you advice if you, if you go out on your own, you know, but I do think that for some people that is what's best for them too. But then for some people, it's not. And then it becomes a matter of having to have those conversations where you're saying, actually, this is what's best for me. And though this more artistic life, maybe, you know, who knows what it is, isn't what you imagined, it's also possible. I think that's why I didn't think that writing career would be possible for me when I was a teenager, because I really did think like, I didn't see any models like that. I didn't see anyone in my community who said, well, this is what I'm going to do. And so... Um, and so my, and my parents didn't either, which is also why they weren't, you know, they were encouraging a more like the path of a doctor because that's what they had seen. But I think that if you, I guess what I'm trying to say is that if you, if you can imagine a different life for yourself, mm-hmm. and if you can imagine that you want that to be the case, then you can help your parents come around to seeing that there are other better lives, you know? The way Me that you my, did. Yeah. And me and my mom actually had like this really beautiful understanding now when we're going, when we're thinking about, you know, back, back in the day, they would like bring me all these rich thoughts, Right. And they'd be like, this guy, this guy, this guy. And I'd be like, no, 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 you know? <laughs> and now actually my mom, my mom and I have had a conversation about that time. And she's like, actually, Papa, that would have been so wrong for you. Like that wouldn't have been the best life for you. And I'm like, thank you, mommy. <laughs> I know. Finally, (laughs) you guys are seeing eye to eye. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. We're going to take our final break. When we come back, I get Fatima's take on her writing process, what led her to write A Place for Us, and her advice for aspiring Muslim writers everywhere. We'll be right back. mentioned in previous interviews is how you came about creating a character of the name Hadia. Can you tell us a little bit more about kind of the experience of coming to the realization that you could write about somebody who represented somebody similar to you? Right. Well, I was 18 when I first wrote a sentence of this novel. And I, before then I had always written, it was more of a hobby. And I would write characters who were completely culturally ambiguous and they had very American names, right? They were named things like um, 
like Corey or Isabel or Scarlett, you know, um, names of characters that I frankly had read my whole life. I had hardly ever read a character who could have been my name. I think I, the first time I came across my name in literature that was not religious literature, you know, like yeah. about Bibi Fatima, for example, or about Lady Fatima was in The Alchemist, right? And I was like, I couldn't believe it. I was like, oh my God, my name is in a, is in a novel. So kind of like what we were saying um, about how it's impossible to imagine a life or future for yourself when you haven't seen it done. And so it was impossible for me to imagine a, a, a story that I could write that was about Muslim characters or Indian characters or Pakistani characters because I hadn't at that time been exposed to it. I mean, of course, the literature was out there. Of course, it existed. I just didn't have the direct curiosity to seek it out because I was just going off of what was being assigned to me in class. Yeah. The Great Gatsby, Jane Eyre, uh, Jane Austen, you know. Did you think it was also partially because you had never seen your name or a person of the same culture or descent placed in the American environment? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I, whether it was the TV shows that I was watching, whether it was, um, you know, the movies that we were watching or the, the, the books that were assigned or the books that I could easily get access to the babysitters club or what have you, um, the boxcar children, you know, it always seemed like the adventures belonged to people that were not like me. That like the adventures that I experience in the mosque calls when the boy that you like walks past and says something and then you like run to the ladies restroom and you talk about it with your cousins. That seemed like an adventure that, you know, no one would care about or that actually didn't belong in literature. So when I first wrote down the name Hadia, I, I myself paused um, because I was confused by that impulse for me. You know, it's the first time I had, you know, thought to do so. And then I was also very, very hesitant partly because I didn't want to write a narrative that would be like exploiting Halia's experience. You know, I didn't want to write a narrative where the stakes were directly drawn from being Muslim or being, you know, mm. children of immigrants in a way that was reductive to, to what their life was actually like. And then the more prompts, you know, I began this in a creative writing class and the more prompts that were given to me, the more I was returning to them through different perspectives and I started to really care about them and feel very devoted to these characters. And I told myself that I would allow myself to write about their experience in an, as long as I knew my intentions, which is that I didn't want to exploit 9-11 as, as the, um, the plot arc that, that centers a story, even though, of course, like how we've been talking, it was an absolutely informative experience for our lives. But I wanted to, I wanted to almost to a fault, I think, focus on them as, as characters, as humans who just happen to be Muslim, who just happen to be um, the children of immigrants, who just happen to be immigrants, you know. And I wanted to like focus on their relationships with each other. I would almost feel um, annoyed when I would see, you know, like for characters in TV shows who are who are white, like they get to just fall in love and that gets to be the whole story. Like, why can't Amar 
just fall in love and have that be his whole story? Like, does it, does his story have to be directly in conflict or in conversation with this identity as his identity as like a young Muslim man growing up in post 9-11 America? Mm. I didn't want to approach him as that because actually when Amar looks in the mirror, though he is that, and though that is how he moves through the world. And it's also like how the world responds to him, how people at the bar respond to him or how people at the locker room post 9-11 do respond to him mm-hmm. but when Amara looks in the mirror he's like I'm just Amara you know what I mean and sometimes the issues that I'm facing the fact that I can't reach for Amira the way that I want to is directly related to the fact that I'm in this particular community right but it's not like done in a um, a way that's looking down on the community you know it's done in a way that's like okay this is the this is the truth and nature of my life how can I still meet Amira we're going to pretend like we have a project that we're working on and be dropped off at the library at the same time and, and meet between, you know, the science bookshelves. You know yeah. what I mean? <laughs> um, yeah, so I just told myself in that moment, I would just do my best to do justice to their lives as they would tell it. Mm-hmm. And I thought that, and I, would, I wanted to include multiple perspectives so that it wasn't a very narrow vision of what this family's life is like. That's so interesting, um, especially because I... I feel like every young Muslim writer who has the aspirations for writing will have a moment in their life where they experience the same thing that you felt. Um, I know for me, when I started writing, it was in a art class where we had this prompt to create a comic book character. Mm. And I created one whose name was Ikra and she had a hijab on and her entire superpower was educating other people. Yeah. (laughs) On, on morals. It, It, was irrelevant to the religious values of the, you know, of Islam, but it was just how to be a good person. And when I first decided that her name was going to be Ikra, it was almost, I had like two different emotions. Mm. One was this fear of a negative reaction from Mm -hmm. my colleagues in terms of like, are people going to judge me based on what I'm putting out about this girl Mm. named Ikra? she's not perfect. She's not going to be perfect. She's going to have her flaws. And how will people take that and respond to that, you know? And I feel like you have that same hesitation at times in the book where we wonder kind of how are the, how is the Muslim community going to respond to a place for us Um, and the characters in there because they are, they have flaws and they have very apparent flaws in some cases that go directly against things that the religion preaches. Right. Yeah, that was, that was a, you know, while I was working on it, that was not a concern of mine. While I was working on it, I was like so in a room alone with these characters that I, I was only thinking of them as Hadia, Leila, Amar, Rafiq, and who are they, you know? Um, only after I knew it was going to enter the world was I like, oh my God, how will people respond to this? Will this be... I, and I had no idea and I had no way to know. I mean, in some ways I feel very, I, I'm sure a lot of people are like, this is not my experience at all. And to that, I say like, well, of course it can't be because this, this novel can only speak for itself and it can only speak for their family. If people find something in there that they feel reflects their life, then I'm happy for that. But if, if not, and if they happen to be an artist, like, please like contribute to the conversation because we need multiple, multiple you know, examples of what it looks like to be a Pakistani girl growing up in California or in New York or, you know, in Indiana or wherever, because only through these 
chorus of varied experiences will we get like some kind of understanding of what life is like, you know? Absolutely. I found it actually hilarious. I was driving in and I heard this conversation on NPR where they were saying how, you know, America is having an appetite for Muslims right now. And I thought that was such an interesting way to to phrase, you know, the desire to see more Muslims in our media um, in any way, shape or form. Mm -hmm. Um, And they they brought up like different shows and different movies where Mm -hmm. Muslims are becoming more than just the quirky character on the side or the extremely negative. Stereotypical. Exactly. Stereotype. So um, it's right. the time is now for a, play, a a book like A Place for Us, but I think mm-hmm. it's always been the time for now. Right. I mean, exactly. I it's it's actually insane how imbalanced the narrative has been up until now. There has been no counter narrative to the stereotype or to um, the conception of Muslims as like terrorists or as violent people or as Muslim women as like submissive people, oppressed people, you know, Mm -hmm. there has been no, there has been nothing to like, to show like the full scope of of an experience to show that like, actually that's not always the case or that's not the case at all for so, for actually the vast majority of Muslims. Yeah. If you could talk to young Muslim writers who maybe are partaking in November's National Novel Writing Month, yeah. NaNoWriMo. <laughs> mm-hmm. What kind of advice would you give them? Hmm. My advice would be to be absolutely aware of your intentions surrounding your work, surrounding your project, and um, to know... And to approach these characters as, and to try your best to kind of silence the, the, the weight of what it means to be writing about Muslim characters in this moment. To try your best to kind of separate that pressure and that, um, like we were just talking about, like that narrative that exists that is so far from your truth. To not write in reaction to that hmm. or to not write against that. Because then you are creating characters who are as reductive, you know, or as flat as those narratives too, right? You're, I mean, one experience that I would have when I was wearing hijab is that I would be, I would be constantly aware of being a woman in hijab and representing Islam as well as myself. Mm -hmm. And I remember like if people like shoved me in, in a, in a coffee shop, I would want to turn around and be like, at at first I would be annoyed, right? Mm -hmm. I'd be like, okay, you shove me. You say sorry to me. It's what I would think, you know? But then I would think like, Fatma, you're wearing hijab. You're not only representing yourself, but you're representing Muslim people. So like, be kind, you know? And so I would turn around and be like, I'm sorry, even though it was them. And even though they might've done it on purpose in some instances, actually, to tell Mm -hmm. the truth. And I, I remember being so frustrated that I was like allowing this element of my identity to inform the way that I was moving through the world in a way that felt unnatural to me. And I remember when I took my hijab off and a similar thing happened and I turned to say like, oh, um, excuse me or something. It felt so freeing because I was like, oh, I'm realizing that I'm doing it only as me, you know? Right. So I guess what I'm trying to say is when you're approaching your characters, when you're approaching your fiction, try to approach it 
without other people's idea of it, right? Without saying like, this is how this, this, this novel or this story will be um, judged based off of, like Muslims will be judged based off of it. But mm-hmm. just say like, no, how can I, how can I approach these characters authentically, intentionally? How can I love them and respect them and be loyal to them and try my best to understand their experience with nuance and complexity? Because you also don't want to do the thing where you're, you know, like a scene where the mother is yelling at the daughter for wearing skinny jeans. For example, if I were to, if I were to write that scene for my own life into a novel, I don't want to write that scene in a way that looks down on my mom. Right. I also don't want to dismiss how frustrating it was for me to be a teenager, to be constantly surrounded by Abercrombie models when I would, you know, walk through the mall and be like, why can't I be beautiful based off of that conception of beauty? Mm -hmm. So I want to interrogate like, that conception of beauty, how wrong that is, how damaging for me that I actually didn't feel comfortable wearing something else. And I Mm -hmm. also want to approach my mother thoughtfully and think like, okay, when my mother says, why aren't you comfortable with who you are? How can I press on that and think, wow, it's really, it must be really hard to be a mother in general. And it must be especially hard to be a mother and realize that your children's identity is very separate from your own do you know what I'm saying? I do, absolutely. And I think you do a fantastic job of it and kind of showing all of the sides of the book from you know different people's perspectives. One thing that I can say for a fact I enjoyed the most about that book was just how fair and honest you are for all all parties involved. You know, Rafiq and Layla got just as much respect as um, Hadia and Amar did for standing up for their own values and what they thought of themselves. Mm. I really appreciated that. And I honestly felt like when this book came across my desk, I was a little bit wary because I'd read a lot of books about the Muslim experience in America um, Mm -hmm. and and they were very reductive and they weren't always representative of what I thought was a natural kind Mm -hmm. of human reaction. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, And so seeing you kind of representing so many Muslims in the way that you have, even though I know it's really just about this one family, it's been such an honest and fair representation that it's been a pleasure to read. Thank you. It's the only book I've read more than once. (laughs) Oh, thanks. That means so much to me. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for having us, Fatma. Thank you. This was this was so wonderful and it's been yeah, it means a lot to me. Thank you. If you enjoyed our podcast, please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Scenario Podcast. And you can find us on SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, iTunes, and Google Play by simply searching What's the Scenario Podcast. I'm Zara Khan. Thank you for listening. Stay curious. I want to thank Zara and Fatima again for joining us on our podcast and for allowing us to be the intersect of their respective journeys. I want to encourage everyone to please grab yourself a copy of A Place for Us and really support Fatima. I can't stress this enough of how impactful that book is. And if you want to see more of Zara, please check out her blog and all her exceptional posts on traveling, fashion, and book reviews on bellsandbooks.com. That's B-E-L-L-E-S-A-N-D-B-O-O-K-S dot com. 
And a special shout out to Ramiz Anwar for providing all the music to this episode. We can't thank you enough, Ramiz, for helping us out. And if you want to hear more, please search Model Town, that's one word, M-O-D-E-L-T-O-W-N, on SoundCloud and Spotify. These amazing individuals did a fantastic job, and they deserve all the support that we can give them. So please be sure to click on all their links in the description below and check them out. Thanks again for tuning in, and if you want to join in on the conversation, please send us your stories via our social media channels or email us at whatsthescenariopodcast at gmail.com. I'm Omar Nazaruddin. Peace and love.